0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, A Theology of Modesty, from our audio collection titled Feminine Modesty. If you enjoy this talk and you would like to hear the rest from that collection, download the Canon app from the App Store of Your Choice and subscribe. Father in heaven, your name is to be praised above every name, and we can only do this through the name of Jesus, your Son, and our Lord. You have fashioned the world in such a way as to glorify it with names, with language, with metaphor. We confess that we do not understand how everything can be so beautiful in its own right, and then how it can be made more beautiful in how we speak of it. But this is the way you have determined the course of the world, and we rejoice in it. Neither do we understand how we mere creatures have been given the gift of language, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. We are baffled that we are allowed to speak of you, and we are mystified at the prospect of speaking to you. But you have made a way. The finite can speak to the infinite. The sinful can speak to the holy. We rejoice before you, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember the glory of routine. The sun comes up every morning, and when it did so this morning, it did not come up tired and listless, muttering something about 6,000 years of this. The thing which keeps us from exulting in repetitive actions is simply this, sin. We are called to a life of cycles, and this is to be our glory. The pattern of inscrutable repetitions that is set out in the book of Ecclesiastes is something which the righteous, righteous only by grace, can enjoy. This enjoyment is wisdom in a world of vanity. And this includes our worship. We gather here again to do many of the same things again, and it would be easy to drift off the point. We have a call to worship. We confess our sins. We sing. We pray. We hear the sermon. We eat. The sinful mind thinks that repetition is the signal to stop thinking and to wander off to something else. But the wise know that repetition is the signal to think about the need for repetition and the nature of it and the kindness that is resident in it. So take time to remember, this service of worship to God is glory to Him and it is food for us. And a hungry man does not complain about the repetitive nature of the act of eating. In Scripture it says, "Lord." You've been favorable to your land. You've brought back the captivity of Jacob. You've forgiven the iniquity of your people. You've covered all their sin. You've taken away all your wrath. You've turned from the fierceness fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Please turn to first Timothy chapter two, I'd like to read from verse nine through the end of the chapter in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety." Let's pray together. Father of all light, we ask you to illumine your word for us now we know that your word is dark to us only because our hearts are dark if we understood ourselves we could understand your word and if we understand understood your word we could understand ourselves we know that nothing can break us out of this trap except the illuminating grace of your holy spirit and so we ask that he would be kind to us now for jesus sake and amen you have noticed perhaps that we're taking a short break from our series in the book of deuteronomy and we will return to finish the book of deuteronomy after a few weeks but i wanted to address the subject of feminine modesty in a series of sermons because we don't want to have a standard in the church we don't want to have a, a set of expectations in the church that are undefined scripturally we want to have the scripture be our, our guide, the scripture be our light in everything that we undertake, and we don't simply want to say, well, that's immodest or this is modest or whatever, because if we don't define it biblically, if we don't take care to define it biblically, then we're going to find ourselves defining it from our own traditions or our own church backgrounds or things that are going on around us, and this gets us into trouble. The sin of immodesty in scripture is not a light matter. It is not an incidental thing and if you underst- if we understand what it is to live in covenant together as god's covenant people it's not a problem with this individual or that individual you can't say of a group of people that this person is Im- immodest but everybody else is okay because the body the bible teaches that if one part of the one part of the church suffers the whole body suffers if one part of the body rejoices then the whole body rejoices if one part of the body is neglecting the Word of God in a uh, fundamental way in a, in a profound way and the rest of the, the the rest of the body is not unaffected by that we are God's covenant people we worship him together we gather together here in order to offer up a corporate worship to God we live together we're trying to cultivate that sense of community and this means that we're intertwined in one another's lives. Modesty in Christian women is therefore a very obvious indicator of whether or not a Christian people understand who they are. If we don't understand who we are, God's holy people, God's covenant people, God's people, if we don't understand that, then it's going to we're going to begin to reflect fashions and fads in the world around. If we come to understand who we are, then that is going to be reflected in everything that we do. It's going to be reflected in our eating together, it's going to be reflected in how we take care of our homes, it's going to be te- reflected in how we educate our children, and it's going to be reflected in how we dress. We have to understand as a Christian people, we have an obligation to understand who we are and what difference that makes in how we dress and how are women dress, which is the particular point of application. It's not as though um, women have to pay attention to how they dress and men don't have to concern themselves with it. It's just simply the recognition this is a big world and we have to take one thing at a time. And one of the things that is a pressing concern for us today in our culture today is what the surrounding culture and what large parts of the church are beginning to say is acceptable behavior among Christian women. I want to begin this subject with a brief apology because this week and over the next few weeks, I, I intend to embarrass a bunch of people, right? and that would that would be people you. It, but when I say I want to begin with a brief apology, the word apology can be used in two senses, and I'm not using it in one. The first sense of the word apology is I'm very sorry that I'm going to do this, and, and I'm going to do it anyway. Well, that sense is not how I'm using it. I'm not sorry at all. So I'm this has, simply has to be done. The second sense of apology is uh where we get the word apologetics from, is where you give a defense for something. So when when someone is rendering an apologetic for the Christian faith, they're giving an apology for the Christian faith, that is to say, they're defending it, they're arguing for it, they're laying out the reasons for it. Now, I want to begin with an apology for plain dealing. I want to begin with an apology for plain dealing because of our substitution of humanistic pietisms in the place of biblical law we have found ourselves unable to deal with sin as god defines it god addresses all sorts of things in the bible that cannot be mentioned in polite company and polite christian company and this is not because the christians are being christian this is because the christians are being humanistic the bible Prohibits us taking what we think of as good, what we define as good, what we define as noble, and substituting it in for what the Bible defines as good, what the Bible defines as noble, and so on. So, consequently, because we have trained ourselves not to address certain things, because polite people don't do that, polite people don't address these things, we find ourselves in difficulties. One of the uh, one example of this is. Uh, there's a verb in English um, which is taken from the name of a particular gentleman, and the verb is to bu- Um This gentleman undertook to clean up the works of Shakespeare and uh, to make some of the Shakespeare's plays suitable for reading in, in family gatherings. And an argument could be made for that for some of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, th- there are some things that need some tidying up. And not so much for us anymore because we don't know what a lot of these words mean, and we don't know what he's talking about. And it sounds very Elizabethan, and and we think it's uh, noble. But there's something there. There's a lot uh, going on there. But the the um, the tragedy of it was that this gentleman, Mr. Balder, just sort of rushed in and cleaned everything up. And it it is a uh, very difficult task to do. And I suspect that the motive behind it was not so much a biblical object, objection to some of the things that you could object to in an uninspired work like Shakespeare, but a developing sense of what's right and, and prudent and, um, and decent among decent folks. And the reason I suspect this is because Noah Webster then came along and published the Webster's Bible, which was a balderized version of the Bible done for the same reason. He wanted to make the Bible suitable for reading in families. Now, what does this tell you? This tells you that a humanistic definition of what is pious, right, and good has been substituted for what God's Word defines as pious, right, and good. God's Word is is that which defines the, the standard of piety, the standard of decency, the standard of righteousness. All of this comes from the Bible. It does not come from our own traditions. But because we have allowed ourselves to become pietistic in how we define righteousness. Oh, um, godly Christians would never say this or a, good, a godly sermon would never mention certain things in the pulpit. You can't mention that in the pulpit. Well, would Ezekiel mention it in the pulpit? Would Isaiah mention it in his pulpit? Would Jeremiah mention it in his pulpit? Yes, yes, but we want to have a biblical church. Yes, yes, we want it, meaning we want to have a modern evangelical church that clings to its own traditions of what's decent rather than coming back to the word of God. So this has put us in the horrible position because of our traditions of having certain things that we may not say, we may not address, we may not talk about because it would be indecent to talk about them and then we drift into practicing those indecent things we say that they may never be preached against they may never be addressed by name because that would be indecent and then because they are never preached against we start to do them alright so what happens is people get to the point where they can start dressing for church in a way that would be um, it, it's not permissible to address that subject in church. You can't say this in church, but you can dress up that way and go to church and nobody says anything and then you become accustomed to it and we become accustomed to to two things. We we become accustomed to the pattern of immodesty in how people dress and we become accustomed to the practice of nobody ever saying anything about it. So, what happens is we have this standard of decency that we apply to the teaching office of the church and we don't apply it to the people who are violating it and i think that this is simply a uh, a modern example of that wrongheadedness that afflicts religious people everywhere jesus says you foolish people what sanctifies what does the altar sanctify the gold on the altar or does the gold on the al- uh, on the altar sanctify the altar which way does it go don't you understand what's more important than uh, which thing is the more important well this has put us in the position of having to ignore the elephant sitting on the coffee table because we all have somehow acquired a taboo against saying elephant. So you, nobody can say it, but everybody can see it. And everybody can think it. Everybody can notice it. Everybody can say jeepers to themselves. As, as long as they don't say, what are you doing? How did your father let you out of the house like that? Why, why are you showing us your breasts? Why are you doing this? And everybody says, <gasps> he said, breasts in the pulpit. He did it again. He, I did it some time ago in the call to worship, and now I did it again. Well, this is the problem. We have gotten accustomed to this idea that you can do certain things, and, and they're invisible as, as long as nobody says anything about it. We're like a two-year-old playing hide-and-seek, sitting in the living room floor covering his eyes, thinking if, no, if I can't see anybody, nobody can see me. And if it's not addressed biblically from the word of God, then we just don't, uh, we have no recourse, we have nothing we can do. Consequently, as biblical Christians, we should prefer to have certain things addressed in church, said in church, so long as it is taken from the Bible, than to have other things routinely done in church, things which are plainly condemned by the word. All right? there are people who do things that the word condemns and we have this unwritten agreement that you don't say anything about it but you do something about it you've you, you, you do what you do in violation of the word and you can't rebuke it because to rebuke it is indecent and to do it is not as these sermons progress i want you to understand that i'm going to be attacking Three particular sins, and I want to attack them with defi- I want to attack them with biblical definitions. I want us to understand that we're not we're not subject to any particular um, culture or, tr- or man-made tradition, but we are as Christians subject to the Word of God. And I want to attack three sins with regard to this. And I'm not going to handle any of them with excessive gentleness. One. First, and this might you might not ex- be expecting this at this point, one is the sin of being a pietistic and gnostic biddy, biddyism, whatever if you want to call it something, biddyism would be that of scurrying around, checking out everybody else's hemlines, checking it out according to a standard that you learned uh, from not from the Bible but from maybe the dress code at the junior high school that you went to back in Wichita. All right, and this has somehow become universalized, and it's applied to the whole christian church and it's done done according to two things pietism which is the the taking of a standard that is not the word of god and substituting it in as though it were the word of god that's what pietism is it's a it's a form of legalism done in the name of a higher walk done in the name of a closer walk with jesus done in the name of a higher standard that's pietism gnosticism is that view that is suspicious of the material world. The material world is seen as somehow inherently corrupt. The spiritual realm is good, the material realm is bad, and this takes, um, lifts certain expressions from, in scripture out of context and says, well, the spiritual man, and then we say, okay, a spiritual man is someone who's, who inhabits the realm of ether and not the, the world of matter. Well, if we go back to the book of Genesis, we see from the beginning that the creation of the world was not the fall. The creation of the world is not to be identified with the fall. The fall came after. God made the world and said that it was good. He pronounced his blessing upon it. God made men's bodies the way they are and said it was good. He made women's bodies the way they are and he said it was good. And we are not commanded to disguise the fact that God has made a differentiation between men and women. But there's a difference between dressing in a way that flatters masculinity or femininity and a way that is obnoxious and reveals or flaunts in a provocative way, which is a violation of modesty. The Bible requires, in Deuteronomy 22:5, the, the Bible requires us to make a distinction between how men dress and how women dress, and, the, and I don't think that we are to try to obliterate all uh, indicators of how men are shaped and how women are shaped. That that is gnosticism. That says that we are some we are somehow required to put everybody in a in a big mattress sack and all we have all these women. Uh, dressed in a mattress sack, or if, they, if we deck them out as though they were Muslim women and not Christian women, and they and they, they look out through these little eye slits as though they were in a pillbox or something, and they're just all covered, they're, they're all covered with cloth everywhere. That is not biblical modesty. That is rebellion against God, and that is, that is a wrong kind of uh, approach to this, and, and it's the sin of thinking that we can solve the problem instead of turning to God's Word to see what we should do, we turn to our own resources. So that's the first sin, that of being a pietistic and Gnostic biddy, and there will, be, there will be more about this as we proceed. The other, the second sin, is that of thinking that one's breasts and legs were meant to be displayed in such a way as to make the general public marvel. All right? I am looking for attention, and I want this attention to be sexual in nature. And it is not necessary for a, for a woman who is dressing this way to think these thoughts beforehand consciously and write them down and saying, this is what I'm doing. It doesn't matter. if you If you put on a t-shirt that has some inscription in a foreign language that you don't know, you're responsible for what it says. Right? You need to find out what it says before you start parading it around the world. If you had some obscene t-shirt in Chinese and you decided to wear it in Beijing, and you're walking around and it's causing uh, general consternation there, it would seem to me that you should find out what your t-shirt says. The fact that you don't understand what it is saying doesn't mean that you're not saying it. And you have to understand, young women, that you don't understand the language that you're speaking to young men. You don't know what you're saying. But it does not follow from that that you're not saying it. Just because it's not in your head doesn't mean that you're not saying it. And so what, what you and you say, well, wh- somebody would tell uh, somebody would tell me. No, they wouldn't. They're, they're enjoying the show. Number one, they're not going to they're not going to tell you. And secondly, even if they aren't enjoying the show, if they're trying to walk with God. They're trying to keep their thoughts and their eyes where they ought to be. They're not going to come up and tell you because uh, then you would slap them. If they said, do you, excuse me, do you know what you're saying? I've never been so insulted in all my life, and, all, and she off she goes in tears. And everybody has a big stink, and and you can't you've got to be kind to the girls, and you can't say what you're saying because everybody would be appalled if anyone said out loud what is being said. So young women have a responsibility to behave in accordance with what their parents tell them because their parents understand something about this language that young Christian women do not understand so this is the sin of thinking that one's breasts and legs are meant to be displayed and everybody's doing it and besides my my motives are innocent I'm not trying to be seductive or provocative in a conscious way that thought was not in my head therefore I'm not saying this No, you're in the position of someone wearing a shirt that has some inscription on it in a language that you can't read and don't know, and you can't interpret it, you don't know what's going on, and people aren't going to tell you for various reasons. But I'm telling you because I'm a minister of Christ, and you need to understand these things. And then third, the third sin I'm going to be hitting is the sin of fathers and husbands who encourage or put up with it. The sin of abdication, the sin of fathers and husbands who encourage this sort of thing on the one hand, or they're not entirely happy about it. They're not encouraging it, but they're not discouraging it. So in either case, it's the sin of abdication. So let's consider these things in turn. I'm going to, as we uh, hit these uh, categories, I'm going to modify the order somewhat. As you've heard in many different settings usually at weddings. It's not possible for men and women in their lives together to avoid talking about Christ and the church. Every Christian marriage is a statement about Christ and the church. A man in how he treats his wife is talking about Christ and the church. He is saying, this is how Jesus Christ thinks of his church. This is how Jesus Christ treats his church. Now. If he's mistreating his wife, then he's lying about how Christ treats the church. But he's still talking about how Christ the tr- how Christ treats the church. And if a woman mouths off to her husband and is disrespectful and does these things, then she is talking about how the church responds to Jesus Christ. And of course, if she's responding to her husband sinfully, then she's saying that the church ought to be responding to Christ in this same sort of sinful way. God made mankind male and female Adam that is mankind includes the woman God created man and woman together as Genesis says male and female created he them male and female together we are mankind male and female together we are uh, we bear the image of God there's a great mystery here as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 this creation of male and female in Genesis finds its culmination in the book of Revelation. So we begin the God's revelation with a wedding and we end with a wedding, male and female. And God gives the, the bride away. God is the father. He gives the bride away. And Adam looks at her and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The first words spoken by a man were a love song. They were a love poem. He responded with gratitude toward God. God established marriage in the garden and in the garden city at the end of all things, we have another wedding. We have the bride adorn- uh, we have the New Jerusalem adorned like a bride for her husband coming down out of heaven. And this is the culmination of all things. Between these two weddings, we have a history of weddings and marital infidelities, weddings and adulteries. The, the theme of harlotry throughout the Old Testament is a prominent one, and it's carried over into the New Testament. James says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with god and when you have a when you cultivate a particular kind of friendship with the world that is a, that that is adulterous and that adultery is enmity toward your husband so it's not possible as we're dealing with our Identity as men and women and as boys and girls and as husband and wife and we're considering our identity as men and women. The way we dress is directly connected to all of this. You can't say as people tend to do in our, in our day. Well, what what matters is what's on the inside. Well, this is just simply wrongheaded. What matters is what's on the outside and what's on the inside governs what's on the outside right out of the abundance of the heart jesus says the mouth speaks your heart overflows into your into your life into your actions and so your theology of marriage your theology of weddings your theology of male and female your theology of fidelity or infidelity is going to be manifested in how you dress so it's not possible for us to separate out the question of dress from this i want to address the theological questions here first and then in subsequent sermons I want I want to point to what the Bible says about the specifics of modesty and here I simply want to give an overview an introduction a theology of the thing first the need for reformation doctrinal and practical infidelity on the part of God's people is described throughout scripture as adultery doctrinal and practical infidelity is described as adultery. God married Israel, and when she played the harlot after other gods, as the, and that expression comes up often, and you see it, uh, probably in its clearest statement in Hosea and Ezekiel. When God's people went after other gods, when, when God's people began listening to the doctrinal teaching of false teachers, when they began to worship other gods, when they began to practice other things, this is described throughout all scripture as adultery. Immodesty in scripture is characterized as an invitation to adultery. It's either fornication or adultery or it's an invitation to fornication and adultery. And please remember what I said, young ladies. It doesn't matter if you don't understand the language. It doesn't matter that you don't know that you're issuing an invitation. You are. Many, many young Christian women would be absolutely appalled at the thoughts that they are creating in other people's minds when they walk downtown. And, and this is something that you see all the way through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. It's very blunt and it's very plain. The way you dress in your family, the way you dress in your individual life is your statement of how you think the church is. And when that is prevalent in the church, it's an accurate statement of how the church is. The modern evangelical church today in North America is corrupt from top to bottom, front to back. We chase after other gods. We don't want our husband. We don't want the Lord Jesus Christ as our bridegroom. We want other bridegrooms. Actually, actually, we don't want to be married at all. We want to be spontaneous and free. We want to go from one to the other. And you'll have churches that chase after this, this church growth fad, and then they're into this doctrine, and then they're over here doing that. Maybe this will get somebody to pay attention to us. And, and this is simply the ecclesiastical equivalent of unbuttoning your blouse this is the ecclesiastical equivalent of a short skirt and high heels follow me I'm easy the modern evangelical church today is easy and consequently they make that statement and they make that statement plain in many different ways when a Christian woman dresses immodestly she is adding her amen to that infidelity she is saying, "I am a member of an easy church, and I am pleased to have it that way. In fact, I want to dress that same way. I want to be that same way in my own demeanor, in, in my own uh, life, in my own pattern of, uh, in my own pattern of life." And so this shows us the need for reformation. When we are calling for reformation, as we are praying for reformation, as we are asking the church, asking God to have the church return to her confessional roots, return to fidelity to the scripture, return to what God has given to us, we are asking that God would make us chaste and pure again that God would forgive our adulteries, that God would forgive our infidelities, that God would forgive our whoredoms, and he would bring us back to himself and purify us and make us into his bride without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. We We should be in anguish about this. We should be not in despair over it, but it should distress us that the church today is not like that. The church today dresses in a wanton fashion. The church today dresses in a wanton fashion. You might be wondering, well, how does the church dress? The church dresses in how the church worships. The church dresses in what is said from the word of God. Is the truth preached? Is the goodness of God's law declared? Is the beauty of holiness set before the people of God? And in most churches today, the answer is no, no, and no. We don't want it, we can't handle it, it's, it's too much doctrine, it's too much of a challenge, it's too much change, it's too much reformation. Can't we have reformation without changing anything? Can't we have reformation without altering what we do? The answer is no. You can't have any of that. The only way for the church to get out of the mess it's in is repentance. It, the, our problem is sin, the solution is repentance and turning to God through Christ who died on the cross and who was buried and rose again from the dead. That is the way out. That is the way of reformation. And there is no other way. There is no alternative. Repentance. That's it. Now, since this is a sermon that, that we want to have application to particular girls and particular closets and the content of your closet how much false doctrine is hanging there on that rack how much idolatry is hanging there on that rack how much provocation of God is hanging there on that rack so that is the need for reformation secondly our tendency is to fight infidelity with infidelity as soon as we catch on that there's something wrong you have you have, of course, the people who are adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses chasing after every fashion and every whim that the world dishes up and we, oh, we want this and we want that. But then there's the problem of the, the Gnostic and pietistic biddy that I, I referred to uh, earlier where we react and we say, okay, we don't like what's being done and so we're going to simply have a conservative humanism. We don't like this easy Sadducean conservatism. We want a Pharisaical conservatism we want but we want the word of man to govern we don't want the word of God to govern we want the word of man to govern but we want to be decent middle-class folks and so we will have a humanistic pharisaical word govern what we do instead of a liberal Sadducean word governing what we do whenever a true problem appears in the church a natural response is for some to fight the problem on God's behalf in God's name but the fight is offered according to the dictates of a carnal wisdom." In other words, we fight with traditional values instead of with holy Scripture. Scripture is, has to be the standard. The reason we don't use the Scriptures to fight this tide of immorality and this tide of the reason we don't use the Scripture is because the Scripture, read rightly, condemns more than this. It condemns more than the immodesty. It also condemns many of the conservative pietistic traditions that we find uh, so precious. So the word condemns more than just immodesty. It condemns many of our little virtues. But we have to understand that pietism always brings in impiety. Pietism doesn't work. Pietism betrays its name. Piety, devotion, dedication to God's Word, this is something that God honors and blesses, and he honors and blesses it because he's the author of it. He's the one who gave it in the first place. Why would he not honor his own gift? If your piety, if your devotion to him is from him, if it's his gift, of course he's going to honor it because it's from him. But if we manufacture a little devotion, if we manufacture a little pattern, oh, a Christian woman, you know, if, 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 if you're a Christian woman, you've got to obey this rule and that rule, and it goes back to the, to the dress code in the, the strict junior high you went to. That's not the Word of God. Now, to the extent that it, it reflects something in the Word of God, and it may, then honor it. But honor it for the Word's sake. And just because it was in the 60s or in the 50s doesn't mean that it's biblical, doesn't make it righteous. It doesn't make it scriptural. So pietism always brings in impiety. We have a host of such regulations in the evangelical church today. And the evangelical church today is one where today virtually anything goes. Anything goes. But this, this impiety, this flood of impiety began with a host of unscriptural restrictions. You can't drink alcohol. We don't care that Jesus made 160 gallons of it at Cana. That doesn't matter to us because we're going to be holier than Jesus we're gonna live we're gonna live on a higher plane we're gonna go and that's just a good example of how pietism can get you by the throat and you can think well yes okay maybe jesus drank wine and and yes okay maybe there's wine throughout the bible all right maybe there's a lot of it throughout the bible but don't you still think that there might be a stumbling block here for a recovering alcoholic don't you think then this is the subtext don't you think that god was foolish weren't there recovering drunkards then Yes, there were. What's our standard? What's our authority? By what standard shall we live? Pietistic evangelicalism, legalistic evangelicalism that manufactures things that you must do on a whim leads to a reaction, and that reaction is what we're experiencing now. So we can't simply lurch back into our legalisms and and expect to solve anything. Thirdly, the sin of abdication. Fathers and husbands today are not jealous enough. And the reason we're not jealous jealous enough with our wives and with our daughters is we're not jealous enough with regard to the gospel. We're not jealous enough with regard to what is a right statement of of God's word. What is a, an honorable way, of and, and a beautiful way, a, a lovely way, a good way of stating faithfully what God's word actually teaches. Because we are not jealous with regard to God's honor. We're not jealous with regard to the honor of our wives who reflect the honor of the church and our daughters whom we're going to give away in, in, in marriage at a point where they will begin to reflect in that new marriage the church. We, we're, not je- we're not jealous for them because we don't care about the church. We have a, a very low view of the church. We have a low view of what God has given to us, and this is reflected in how wives and daughters sometimes dress. Now, let me let me say something else here, I, and this this has a this is a problem that I think many pastors face. Is you might uh, you might call it a, a variation of the eighty twenty rule. You know, in any organization, twenty percent of the people do eighty percent of the work. And, you know that that eighty twenty rule, and you might be addressing a problem in 20 percent of the people, and, and then the 80 percent of the people who don't have the problem are, hurry to fix it, right? If you, if you had a problem in a church where some people just simply weren't working industriously enough and you preached against that, all the people who are already industrious would work doubly hard, and the people who aren't working at all, the sluggards would be sitting there, well, preach it. Just preach it. That's, I hope so-and-so is listening well it's the same thing here i don't i don't want those women who do dress modestly i don't want those women who already have a modest christian demeanor to to come next week or not come at all next week or 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 come completely covered we don't want anybody dressing like a muslim woman we want christian women to to dress according to their dignity and their station i'm not talking here, directly um, to modest women who need to become more modest, I'm speaking about the problem of immodesty. And if you don't know what that is, ask your husband, ask your father, and don't and, and do so, prepared to listen. Because the reason you say, "Well, I did ask once." And, and he, he said I, what I was wearing was OK. Yes, but that was after three days of tears. That was because you burst and you, he hurt your feelings when he told you. And then there was a big scene, and he doesn't want that again. Now, of course, that's his problem. He must not be abdicating that way. But tragically, uh, men sometimes do. Men need to be more jealous than they are. Men must look to Christ and the church for their pattern because they, in turn, are representing that pattern. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11:2. For I am jealous over you, with godly jealousy i'm jealous over you with godly jealousy for i have espoused you to one husband that i may present you as a chaste virgin to christ tragically it cannot go without saying anymore it should be able to but it can't go without saying anymore if the goal is to present a chaste virgin it must also it must also necessarily be a goal to present her looking as though she is a chaste virgin. there is no great benefit in presenting someone who's technically a virgin who looks like a hooker. It, that's, you, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the symbolism. You're missing the glory of it. What you're doing is you're saying, okay, technically I, I've not sinned, but I want to look like I have. I'm not cha- I, I am chaste, but I, I want to look as though I, ha- I am not chaste. I'm sexually inexperienced, but I want to look as though I'm sexually experienced. That's what I want to look, because being a virgin is not cool. And just, just think, imagine St. Augustine or somebody in a time machine coming back to visit us. And he's visiting our church and our community. And, and we ask, would you like to speak to any group? And he, yeah, I'd like to speak to the virgins. I'd like to give them a word of exhortation. And we say, um, we don't have that category anymore as a social category. We have it as a medical category but we don't have it as a a social category. If you went to Augustine's church, you'd be able to say, here here are the virgins, the maidens. And that was a social office. That was a status that you had, and you declared it, and it was a glory. Today, it's it's something that is um, completely absent from our thinking, and it's absent from our thinking because husbands and fathers are not jealous enough and they're not jealous enough of their wives and daughters because they and their pastors and their elders are not jealous enough with regard to the gospel and I hope you see these these things coming together Paul Paul says that he wants to present the church to Christ as a chaste virgin. But his metaphor, his analogy, depends upon having this lived out in the community. He knew, and the people he was writing to knew what it was to present a young woman as a chaste virgin. Then husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish this is in Ephesians 5 25 through 27 a virgin daughter a chaste wife are to be loved and sacrificed for that's the command husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it so that's the command love and sacrifice And then there are certain things that flow from that love and sacrifice. When that love and sacrifice are present, this is what follows from it in God's pattern, in God's ideal pattern. Wives are to be loved and sacrificed for and daughters are to be loved and sacrificed for so that the young guy who marries her has a head start. He's he's a 22-year-old dope and he needs a head start. And so what happens is the fa- a, a wise and experienced father needs to love his daughter and, and give her uh, the, the glory and the, 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 the absence of a blemish, the, the moral character that will enable a young man to look at what her father has done and imitate that and then take it from there and learn as he goes, as he, as he considers the scripture. So what is the result? That they might be cleansed. Glorious, spotless, without wrinkle or anything like it, holy, and without blemish. These things mean, among other things, that fathers should care very much about whether the daughters look like bed bait. It would be nice to say that in our community we don't have that problem. Everybody's doing it. All the dads are doing it. All the husbands, everybody's doing it. Every dad, every husband, everybody's doing what they ought to be doing. I would love to be able to say that, but I can't. This is not an imaginary problem. I'm not preaching this to this congregation because other congregations have the problem. They may, but that's not the reason for this sermon. We need to tighten up. We need to understand what we are doing, who we are. But remember, as we tighten up, there's a, there's a carnal way of tightening up. There's a worldly way of tightening up. There's a pharisaical way of tightening up. And there's a biblical way of tightening up. And I have to say that others of you need to loosen up. Right? Some some people need to tighten up, some people need to loosen up so that we can be Christian people. Now, the problem with saying some people need to tighten up and other people need to loosen up, the problem is that the wire when sin darkens the mind. And so when I say some people need to tighten up, the people who need to loosen up tighten up more. And when I say some people need to loosen up, the people who need to tighten up loosen up more. They don't hear the right word to the right person. And Consequently, we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit to drive this point home in the right place at the right heart at the right time. If you have a problem with immodesty, you need to fix it. If your daughters, if your wives have a problem with immodesty, that's not their problem. Fathers, husbands, that's your responsibility. And you can't say, oh, I don't like it that they look this way, but what can I do? Well you can be a man. It says in Deuteronomy 32 twice, in Deuteronomy 32 and in Psalm 78, Psalm 78:58, God's jealousy is visited this way. When Israel goes whoring after other idols, when Israel begins looking like she's heading that way, God's jealousy, the Scripture tells us, provokes him to anger. Anger is the response of jealousy. If there's nothing your daughter could do to make you angry you don't love her. If there's nothing your daughter could do to make you angry in how she dresses and how she looks, then you don't love her. You may be sentimentally entangled, you may like her, you may, want, you know, you may like what she brings, but you don't love her. You don't love her biblically. Love is jealous. Love is possessive. Love says, honey, I know what young men are thinking. I used to be a man just like that. And it's taken a long time walking with God, mortifying the flesh as the scriptures tell me to do. John Owen once said, let not that man think he makes any progress in godliness who walks not daily over the bellies of his own lusts. That is what Christian sanctification is. It's grinding it out by the grace of God, and a, a Christian man who is has a handle on it, has, under, has come to understand something of what it is to get a grip, something of what it is to walk in a way that is honorable to God and respectful to his wife, is not going to allow his daughter to go out and cause consternation in the Christian community. And if he does, he doesn't love her and it doesn't matter what he says he does. Because love is jealous. Love is jealous. And if, if love is not jealous, it isn't love. And if that jealousy cannot be provoked to anger, then it's not the kind of jealousy that God exhibits toward his people. This relates to another aspect of this, and that is to say, I said earlier that the modern evangelical church is in a state of high corruption. And that a corollary, if you put these two things together, is that God is angry with the church today. God is angry with the church today. Reformation is not a cool thing for us to experience, but it doesn't matter to God. That's not what we're saying. Why have you hardened our heart, Isaiah says, to turn from your way? We need to ask God, why is God, God? Why are you visiting this judgment upon your people? Why are we so unfaithful to you? Why do we hold your gospel in such contempt? Why do we hold your worship in such contempt? Why do we hold this table in front of us in such contempt? Why, why have you hardened our heart to do this? And cry out to him, asking him to restore us and 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 bring us back to uh, bring us back to a glorious and pure chastity. Well, this is the the fundamental issue before us: Are we going to be jealous or not? Biblically jealous? Of course, sinful jealousy can be irrational. Sinful jealousy. If someone has the problem of Biddiness. If a husband isn't standing up to his daughter, who is dressing in some skanky fashion, right? She dresses in some some skanky fashion, and he doesn't stand up to her, then he doesn't love her. Well, of course, if his wife is vulnerable to the problem of being a biddy, and says, "Oh, I saw so and so's ankles," and I think it's a provocation. I read this. I, I read this reprint of a 19th century book that was saying this, that, and the other thing. And, and there was a three-inch slit down there by the floor that I saw. And that's how I saw her ankles. And I think you should speak to her husband. I think that the, the Christian man would speak to his wife about that. And if he doesn't do that, then he doesn't love her. So now some of these specifics we're going to have to get into and look at what the Word actually says. And that's what we're going to do uh, in the future. But let me conclude with one other thing. One application. Even though we've not gotten to the specifics, we can make one application from this text. The application is necessarily general because specific definitions from the word are going to be developed later. But, the, but one fundamental principle can be drawn. This is a command in our text, First Timothy 2. This is a command to adorn. It's a command to adorn. Just as men are commanded to lift up holy, hair, uh, holy hands in prayer, so the women are commanded to dress in a certain way and comport them cert- themselves in a certain way, indicating, I think, contextually, that the way they dress is offered up as a prayer. Just as men lift up holy hands in prayer, so the women are to dress in a certain fashion that honors God. And notice that they are commanded to adorn themselves. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest Apparel. Now, what the, the legalism does, and there is a strong there's a there's a, a strong streak of this in the American character. They see it as adornment versus anti-adornment. They see it as adornment versus no adornment. Makeup versus no makeup. Uh, nice looking clothes versus ugly clothes, and the plain, simple. Um, the, the plain and simple way is the biblical way because we are against adornment. But notice that, that Paul's command is, I command basically in the same manner, I want women to adorn themselves. The issue is not whether women adorn themselves, but how, and always, always, by what standard. The issue is what standard is the adornment going to match, not whether there's going to be adornment. So. Women are commanded to honor God in how they adorn themselves. And and I think we can see an aesthetic principle that we gain from the Word of God at this point. The aesthetic principle that's revealed here is that simplicity is valued in Scripture not because simplicity is plain and ugly. Simplicity is not valued in Scripture because it's ugly. Simplicity is valued because it's lovely. So there's a, there's a common aesthetic mistake, whether it's in music or painting or sculpture, that if one's good, two's better, and the, and the first thing you know, you've got, um, you've got some work of art that looks like a circus wagon and there's not a square inch that doesn't have some little decorative uh, giga on it. And that, that Baroque overboard sort of uh, thing, I think, violates a scriptural aesthetic principle. The plain style, the simple style, is not valued because it is ugly. God wants Christian women to adorn themselves, and he wants them to adorn the gospel in how they adorn themselves. So the question for Christian women is is not to adorn or not to adorn. The question is rather to adorn the way God commands or to adorn another way. Women will adorn themselves that's inescapable. Women will adorn themselves. The only question is by what standard? Is it going to be God's standard, God's aesthetic principles, God's honor, God's gospel, or is it going to be another? There is much that we have to consider uh, yet, but I hope that this serves as a foundation. And let's ask God to give us clarity of mind. Our Father in heaven, We ask you now to accompany us as we seek to live out what we've heard and learned. We ask that just as you have adorned us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we might adorn your name through your grace and how we live, down to the details of how we dress. And we ask for this confidently because we pray in Jesus' name and amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. You can find that talk and the rest from Feminine Modesty on the Canon app.